Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton, and I'm joined by Adam Grossman. We have an amazing show today, and Adam had the chance to speak with George Pine. You know, throughout George's career, he's demonstrated uncanny ability to, to uncover potential that, that others may not, and then turn that potential into immense value. Adam, can you give us a little bit more about that background and how George has, has done those things in his career? Absolutely. George Pine is the founder and CEO of Bruin Sports Capital, a global sports and entertainment company launched in 2015. Bruin is the latest chapter of, a, of his widely respected career, architecting business transformation, a range of industries that manifest in billions of, uh, of dollars in, in revenue shareholder value. Backed by the industry's top private equity companies and family investors, Bruin specializes in developing high growth global sports and entertainment businesses. You know, one of the things that I found most interesting about George is his non-traditional path into sports and in sports business. He started his career working for his family's real estate business before moving to Atlanta to, to lead a full analysis of the city's budget and, and operations on behalf of the Chamber of, of Commerce. And then from there, went into commercial real estate at Portman Companies, where he organized the world's second largest debt restructuring at, at the time of that, that debt restructuring and launched his first business, which was in sports marketing. In that business, NASCAR was a client and eventually recruited him to, to build a commercial side of the sport, where he became the, only the second non-family to mem- member to be on the board of NASCAR. That sports marketing business is where the, that full shift in the sports industry took place with NASCAR uh, being a client and eventually recruiting him to build on the commercial side of the sport. I think it's really interesting when you bring up the part about him taking that leadership role um, as part of uh, to join the uh, board of NASCAR. Um, the idea of him joining the board of NASCAR, given that he was not a family member, just shows his capability to um, really take a- and develop the commercialization plan that transformed the, the regional niche sport into an elite uh, U.S. sports league, generating multi-billion dollars in commercial revenue. His incredible run in NASCAR was followed up by his stewardship of IMG, where as president and board member for IMG Sports and Entertainment. He was responsible for record revenues and earnings growth across multiple commercial lines of business. Uh, That growth was the catalyst for the $2.4 billion price uh, WME paid for the company in 2014. Yeah, you know, and on, on top of all the, of that great work, George is also uh, on the board of the National Football Foundation, uh, the National Catholic Charities for the Archdiocese of New York. Um, he also serves on the board of 24-Hour Fitness. You know, there's so much uh, to cover in this interview. So please, everyone enjoy uh, Adam's interview with George Pine. Welcome everybody to the uh, Northwestern University Masters of Sports Administration Above Your Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. Today we have with us George Pine. Uh, George, George has had a uh, very successful career in the sports industry, working in a variety of different contexts, which we're gonna get into uh, during the conversation, but we wanna officially welcome uh, George Pine and thank him for taking the time today. Thank you, I'm excited to be here and appreciate the opportunity. Great. Um, so. Why don't we start out with, you know, I mentioned you had a successful career in the industry. Can you give our audience a background about your career in the sports industry and how you've gotten uh, to Bruin Sports Capital? Sure. I mean, I think, I think when I look back on things that I did well, um, you know, I look for growth markets. I surrounded myself with good people. I work for good people and I took calculated risks. So, um, I started in sports way back in the 90s, uh, working for the Portman companies. I started a sports business for them. 
Uh, we did stuff around the Super Bowl and the Olympics and uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and then um, was hired by NASCAR in 1995 to um, in the area of business development and ended up running the company, going on the board, and <clears throat> had quite a run from 95 to 2005, and then was recruited to be president of IMG, and did that from 2005 to 2013, and then started Bruin Sports Capital um, in January of 2015. One of the things that stood out is, you know, if we start from the beginning, is your um, your being an athlete, particularly at, at Brown, and then, you know, obviously, um, your son being a, a recruited athlete going to Notre Dame now, but we have a lot of students in our classes who are either current athletes, former athletes, um, and are looking to leverage their background as an athlete in their career. So how are you able to leverage your background as an athlete, particularly as an offensive lineman at Brown into a successful career in the sports industry? I think two things. I think one, I, I always understood sports. You know, I understood what fans wanted and then I understood you know, sports well. So I think that always served me well because I was a fan. As a kid, I loved all sports. I followed all sports. I can't believe I made a living doing something I really loved. So that was great. But I think it did help me to understand what consumers wanted. And then on the on the product side, you know, ironically, I never really got into sports I loved for a long time. I, mean, I, I had great respect for NASCAR, but I didn't love car racing. And, uh, you know, at IMG, initially when I got there, we were big in golf and tennis, which weren't exactly a natural for me but you know ironically the experience at uh playing sports in college helped me understand nascar you know the the drivers the crew members they were really no different than to me a football locker room so i think one culturally being able to fit in and sports helps you you know you have to be a good teammate you have to be able to work with others i think that served me well and then i also think something that's helpful with athletes is learning how to win and lose Right. And, and I think it's more important to learn how to lose than it is to win. And the ability to come back after setbacks that you learn in athletics is really valuable when you, when you go out in life and in business. And before you, I, I want to talk about your experience in NASCAR, but before you joined NASCAR, you mentioned you had some jobs that, um, one, you started your own company, but in sports marketing, but you also worked outside of the sports industry. Um, how was your experience outside of the sports industry? How did that help you build your career? Um, within the sports industry? Yeah, well, you know, uh, when people ask me how did I get started, so I went to work in a family business, did that for two years, wasn't real happy. And I always remember it was great advice. I went to the Brown career office, and I, I have to tell you, at that time, I was not lacking for um, confidence. <laughs> and I went in and, and gave the lady my resume and said I was this and that. And she gave great advice. She said, rip up your resume, here's the alumni book, and start calling people. Yeah. And that was terrific. And I networked a Brown quarterback who was the president of the Atlanta Bar Association who gave me to another guy that was a lawyer in Atlanta. And I ended up taking a job where I did a study on the Atlanta public schools on behalf of the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce. And the reason I took the job was that all the presidents of the big companies were the board members. And the idea was if I did a good job, one of those guys would hire me. Now, I didn't have a lot of money. I, I I had $4,000. I was married for a year. I had a, my car had 170,000 miles on it and only two of the four doors open. And my new wife, who I'm still married to 30 years later, her car had 90,000 miles with no air conditioning. And you need air conditioning in Atlanta in the summertime. <laughs> yeah. But we moved down there and here I am doing a study on the finances of the Atlanta public schools. 
but it was the exposure to those guys. And I, and they, and I did get a job working for a big company and, and that's how I got ahead. And I worked for this big company and I, I represented the company in downtown as well as a strategy. And I had this idea of, Hey, we have all this empty space. Let's get in the sports business. So I think that's why I just think um, networking is an important element. And the lady also said, you know, here's the alum alumni books, start calling people. And she said, don't ask for a job, ask for advice. And she said, when you go to a meeting, you know, ask, for, ask them for advice and if there's other people you could talk to. And, you know, quite frankly, to today, you know, that's what I do in business. So it's really great advice that I got. And I'd, I'd encourage other people to build their network ask for advice and uh and don't be afraid yeah and that does lead into the nascar experience obviously you were able to build your network and nascar recruited you um to join the organization at a senior level um can you talk more i mean one of the things that um has been well publicized about your background is that you know nascar when you joined was more of a regionalized sport and you helped to build it into a more you know national and global enterprise so one can you talk about your experience working um you know when you first came on versus you know, some of the experiences you had uh, while you were there. Yeah, I mean, the funny part for NASCAR for me was, um, you know, I never uh, changed motor oil in my life, and my wife taught <laughs> me how to drive a stick shift. And when I left, I ended up running the company and being on the board. But, um, you know, NASCAR but was a great place uh, for me, a great chance. I Again, the other thing, when you look at the things that worked for me was Atlanta in the early 90s was a growth market. I thought NASCAR had great growth potential. I had a friend of mine whose wife was going to Georgia State. She kept coming home on the weekend saying, you know, listing out these great growth fundamentals. So we went down prior to being hired by them, and they signed them up as a client. So I thought NASCAR had great growth potential. And I, they had a really small, the commercial operation of NASCAR was like four people. And NASCAR's role was really to um, negotiate sanction agreements and administer the rules. And so we were at a young age, I was given a tremendous responsibility because a small commercial people forget it was called Winston cup racing, right. 16 races were on the national network. And when we left there, you know, we were on NBC and Fox and we were had a hundred fortune 500 companies in the sport. So uh, we had a great product. So I was very lucky that we had a great product uh, and that really wasn't commercialized. And I, I get to lead really the commercial efforts and, and we really were, we aggressively sold. And the other thing we did was we really recruited a lot of talented people. So we recruited people from Disney, the NBA, um, you know, NASCAR is probably a little more conservative organization, you know, in the communications. I hired people from the Kerry campaign. I hired people that were, I brought in Democrats to help us with the PR. And I brought a diverse group of people into NASCAR that were not necessarily NASCAR fans, but were really expert at what they did. So I think, you know, I had to work for Ted Forsman. You know, you have to have potential, then you have to have people, and then come the profits. And so I think NASCAR always had the potential, and it was important to go out and recruit good people, which we did. And, and, and we were young and aggressive. Um, we sold, we, we really had some great salespeople. I mean, Brett Yormark, who now is president of Rock Nation, and was CEO of the New Jersey, the Brooklyn Nets, and ran the Barclays Center. And he was a great salesman. So we were aggressive uh, salespeople, not only selling to sponsors, but also going, you know, I used to go out and meet with the, the news media to try and tell the NASCAR story, both nationally and locally. That's why we brought in the people from the 
the political realm because they were excellent at messaging and communication. And so we, we were, we had a good product and we aggressively told our story. And the, and the last thing I'd just say is we understood our fan base. So we, when we started, the money started coming in, we went out and hired the, I hired a brand manager from Procter & Gamble. We hired brand strategists. And we came up with uh, either two binoculars. One was great competition, which everyone said. But what differentiated us is we were straight up, genuine, felt like a big uh, family, people you could admire, a sense of belonging. And, of course, we were fortunate that at that time where IndyCar was separating and the other professional sports leagues, were many of them were on strike. So that contrast of likable athletes that were straight up genuine, someone you could admire at a time when the other people, our competitors were having a challenge was a really good opportunity for us. Yeah, you, you brought up a lot there, but one of the things I, I want to talk about is, you know, you, one of the things that's been consistent in your career is driving change, right? And particularly, you know, whether starting with NASCAR or, you know, we'll talk about later, particularly with IMG, but um, what was it like to be driving change, particularly in an organization that's family owned, family operated, um, a lot of sports organizations still are family owned and operated and have a long history of that, that uh, family owning and operating uh, a team league event. Um, so what was it like, A, driving change in general, but B, particularly working in a family oriented and family owned environment? Yeah, I'll take the, the first one, the, the family one first and then driving change. And a family, <laughs> what I love about a family business is that once you convince a family member of the right thing to do, it's going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and it's one of the things I try to emulate here at Bruin. If you know, I'm a principal. If you convince me of the right thing, then we're doing it. So I didn't really find family businesses to be very political, and for me, that was a place to thrive. When you're in a bigger organization, you might have the right idea, but you're concerned about well, how the, what are other people going to think about it? Will they hold it against you? And that's a little more challenging. So I love the family business dynamic. Now we had four family members, and they all didn't agree. So you really couldn't be political with them because uh, they switch sides in the middle of the argument or depending on the subject matter. So you kind of had to be uh, sincere and true uh, to your word uh, with the four family members. But, and then in driving change, you know, I do think for me, I really love changing things. Um, and I do think it comes from having a vision of what things could be. I thought those attributes and the product uh, that NASCAR had great potential uh, but it wasn't easy, right? We had to go out and tell a story to corporate America that people didn't have a very good image of NASCAR, right? Uh, they thought it was mostly male, not well-educated, and, and regional. And we had to convince people that actually 40% of our fans were female. Actually, we did have a number of educated consumers. And we had to really make that case. And then, you know, overall, as time went on, you know, um, the safety improvements, uh, starting a diversity council, um, you know, that re required leadership and, and challenging and pushing things, which wasn't easy, you know, and I kind of look at our country today, you know, and it, you know, leadership's important. And that leadership is in terms of as a person and an individual, but also in a company. So advocating change, you have to, um, you have to be willing to go where people feel uncomfortable. What was easy for me at NASCAR was, that for my first five years, I was really the head commercial guy, and I made so much money that I was able to use that uh, credibility financially to drive the change uh, in the rest of the organization that we really needed. Um, the change is not easy, right? Because uh, 
if things have been a certain way for a long time, there's probably a really good reason for them being that way. And you have to be um, strong-willed to, uh, to, to change. And I, First, I think you have to have a vision of where you want to take something and then the tenacity to execute that vision and also people skills and street smarts because so much of life is not all um, on the merits. Part of it is the, do people trust you? Do people respect you? Are you sincere? That shines through also. And obviously for me, you know, being from Massachusetts, going to Brown, not being a car guy, uh, you know, I will say people trusted me and I was not like the people there. And to their credit, they embraced somebody that wasn't like them. And uh, it, it worked out great for me and probably pretty good for them too. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that a little bit in more detail. Cause again, I think that's a consistent theme in your career is culture, right? Building culture and particularly building culture with people with divergent backgrounds. Uh, one of the things that also is consistent is your integration of technology um, and integration of, and looking at and harnessing new technology and different career paths. So it seems like that, you know, maybe started before, but really was honed in at NASCAR. So, one, can you talk about the how you built a culture, particularly with people with divergent backgrounds, and how does technology and people kind of intersect while you're building that culture? I, you know, I, I think really when people knew me, um, starts with the with the person with the leader, right, and that you're sincere. So I, I recruited uh, the first African American female officer of the company from the NBA. I recruited the first Jewish uh, executive in the history of the company. As I said, I brought Democrats from the Kerry and Gephardt uh, groups in. So I brought, I brought in a diverse group of people. And uh, we used to have a fun time. We'd meet once a month. We'd fly in from all over the country. We'd meet in Orlando Airport at the Hyatt and have a go to dinner and then meet the next day. And, and I think the way you got to do that to motivate people uh, is, is to be on the merits. People knew with me like that I cared about it. They also knew that you could convince me if you could, if I had a position and you could, you had a better position that I would change. So you could move me around. You knew I was sincere and you knew everything was on the merits. And that was such a great, that's a great culture to have. And, uh, and you had to stand up for what you believed. And, and in fairness to the owners of NASCAR, they allowed me to create that situation. Um, they could have stopped me uh, any number of times. And, uh, so one, I have to thank the ownership for, for allowing that kind of culture. And uh, for me, it was, um, and it's empowering too, right? It's fun, yeah. right? Because we're doing things differently. And, and it's kind of fun to uh, change convention, right? Who's to say you can't do this or to, to do that? You know, maybe you can. Yeah, and that leads to the next question with, you know, your next role. Um, where we're to, you already mentioned from a leadership perspective, Ted, Ted and Teddy Fortsman. Um, can you talk about what it was like to make the transition from NASCAR to IMG? You know, obviously your conversations uh, with Ted Fortsman and, you know, why you decided to make the move from NASCAR to IMG. I love NASCAR. When I left NASCAR, I broke down and cried. But I was 40 years old. I went there at 30. I was 40 and I felt like, you know, there was nothing left to do. We just done a huge TV deal. We did a big title sponsorship and I felt like there was nothing left for me to do. And I, I kind of hit the ceiling there. And I think with, um, with Ted, the opportunity to go to IMG operated in, in 30 countries. And I also thought working for Ted Forsman, who had bought and sold 39 companies and was in his mid sixties at 40 years old, 
it was just too big of an opportunity for me to, to pass up. Now, I probably should have done a little more research. Ted was a pretty, pretty tough guy. <laughs> and I lasted longer with Ted, I think, than anybody else in any of the companies. But, um, but I learned a lot from Ted. The thesis was right that, you know, working with somebody like Ted, Ted was really smart. And watching him analyze things, you know, I learned a great deal. And then, of course, IMG was in a broad array of sports all over the world. I thought it would be a, I'd make myself better. And I really, you know, just today, this morning, you know, I was talking to somebody and I go, well, boy, that experience at IMG still pays off, you know, even to today. Now, IMG was different than, than NASCAR. NASCAR was really a growth thing. So I, we built that thing from the bottom up. And uh, NASCAR, I mean, IMG, I came in at the top and I had to restructure from the top down at 40 years old. Wow. And one of the mistakes I made was I didn't take any of my people with me. I honored my word to NASCAR that I wouldn't take anybody. That was really difficult to do, to change a, uh, an environment with people you don't know, right? So you have the people that are there, they don't know you. Then you're going to go recruit people to help you uh, effectuate that change and you don't even know the people that you hired effectuated the change. Yeah. Um, so that was tough. I think that th one of the things I did write though was I went all around the world in my first 90 days and I studied the business really well because you have that kind of uh, honeymoon where you can do that. And I did make a number of changes and there was a big restructuring. And some of the things that I did didn't work, but more things work than not. And in the end, that really drove to a lot of value. And I think the last thing for me, where I, what I learned at IMG working for Ted was, you know, how to do an acquisition, how to look at things, how to identify growth markets, um, and also really the financial discipline that a private equity firm brings to the table was imparted to me over my nine years there. So I think for all of those th reasons, it was a better opportunity, you know, for me. Can you talk about some of the, you know, you mentioned change, you know, obviously, like you said, with, whether it's uh, the leadership directly or what the company was focused on. Can you talk about the changes you made at IMG and then the process leading up to the eventual sale of the company? Yeah, I think, I think what we were trying to do is, you know, when you really have to grow EBITDA, you look at things differently. So, you know, I think before it was a, IMG was a family owned business uh, by Mark McCormack and they were more concerned about, uh, scale than they were about profits and when you work for a private equity firm they're trying to get a return on their equity and they were really interested in the profits so that was a one discipline but even you really it's not really just a cost discipline because in order to get the returns you have to invest capital in things that can grow so my old boss, ted used to say to me you know look harry don't waste your time on that business harry houdini was a great magician he couldn't fix that business, so you're not going to be able to, too. I didn't like it when he said it, but he's actually right. And so what I, one, of, one of the big areas of growth for us was the college sports, where mm -hmm. IMG was not in college sports. And we invested in a bunch of mom-and-pop companies uh, and really grew the earnings. So we, we bought $18 million of earnings, and five years later, the, those businesses were generating $66 million in earnings. Huh. And... Um, the proposition was that college sports, you had to identify a growth market. College, and I always remember college sports has had like 190 million fans, 80 million female fans. Females make most buying decisions. They had more wealthy people in, that were college sports graduates than golf. And it was number one with uh, young people, 18 to 24, the highest CPM 
on television is the final four because young people watch and it's ethnically diverse. So we, I, when I first got to IMG or a year or two into it, I saw this demo. I called my guy at NASCAR, the Procter & Gamble guy that I hired at NASCAR. I said, his name's Roger. I said, Roger, where did these numbers come from? How come I never saw them before? And he said to me, he goes, oh, George, he goes, we would never mention the college numbers because we know we could never compare to them. And that's when I knew I was like, okay, great demo. And the rights are undervalued compared to the pros because they're being operated by these mom and pop companies. That's a good opportunity. So that was a great growth uh, initiative for us. The other one that really created a lot of value at IMG, I wasn't written up so much, was IMG Academy. It was a school that never made money for 30 years, places where great athletes went really to become IMG agents, but not a place to really put you to college, even though they did. And so when we got in there, we were like, listen, for every Maria Sharapova, there's 2,000 people that aren't Maria Sharapova. Let's start helping kids get into college. And, and also, let's embrace American sports. It was really known as the Bulletary Tennis Academy, led better golf, rebranded at IMG, got into lacrosse, women's soccer, basketball, men's and women's basketball, American football, really American sports. And the place really, you know, took off, went from when I was there, zero to 25 million of EBITDA. So there's a business had never made money for 30 years. So those are examples of things that we were able to really create value. And we transitioned from really talent representation while we continue to do it. It really wasn't a big profit center in the company. We started investing, consulting, licensing, college sports, the academies. And those are the businesses that really propelled the earnings at IMG. And then, you know, what was it like to then go through the acquisition process? You know, one of the things that you've talked about is that Ted helped you set, you know, understand from a risk perspective, you want to understand the upside, understand the downside and figure out ways to, uh, you know, minimize downside risk. Um, you know, from your perspective, what was the process like going, going through the sale and what did you identify potentially as the risk of, of a sale at that time for IMG? Yeah, well, I always knew when we, it was a, it was a different experience, quite honestly. I mean, I knew two years, uh, two years out that the company was going to be sold. Ted unfortunately passed away of cancer. So very uncertain. So I started two years out, started thinking about what I might want to do next because I didn't know who the new owner would be and whether or not they would want me to stay on or, or, uh, or whether or not I would want to stay on either. So it's a little bit of an uncertain thing. Of course, you're incented because you're a shareholder, but you know, I, I never did. I'm not going to say everybody likes to make money, but I don't think anybody does really well by thinking about money. I, you know, I was passionate about what I, what I did. So that was different because we, we had to give up and give 10, uh, 10 presentations to 10 different buyers. And one of the buyers, CAA, I stood up for three hours and presented and took questions. So that it was a different situation, kind of a trying, uncertain period uh, and, and somewhat unnerving. Um, we did really well and um, we we're very happy for that. And, um, you know, then I, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. In the end, I decided to do what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, the guys at Endeavor were great, offered me to stay, but I, I was 48 years old and I was like, you know, if I don't take a shot on myself, I can't wait till I'm 60. Uh, <laughs> age has always mattered to me. So like when I moved to Atlanta, Georgia at 25, I was like, I have nothing to lose. If it doesn't work, I'll move home. And I took a shot at NASCAR. At 40 years old at NASCAR, you know, I, 
I could have stayed another 10, but I just couldn't see myself being that 50-year-old guy at NASCAR. So I took a shot at IMG at 40. And then at 48, I'm like, you know what? I'm never going to take a shot on my own. Now's the time. Ed, can you talk about what you're doing now? You know, what Bruin uh, Sports Capital is, um, how you decided to go in this direction, and just for our audience, particularly for our student audience, uh, they may not really understand what private equity is or what it does. So can you just explain, you know, in the context of Bruin, what private equity is? Right. You know, when I had, as I had gone on, you know, I didn't run the media section at IMG. And IMG um, wasn't, was a little more political. And I, and I haven't worked at NASCAR where nothing was political and everything was results-oriented. I didn't really like it as much, to be honest. So I also wanted to create something that wasn't political, that was on me. And, um, and so I wanted to go out on my own and take a shot. And I had a number of people who had told me that they thought I could go out based on my track record and raise money. So I went out to six wealthy families in WPP, which was the largest advertising agency in the world, and raised $250 million. Now, I did it in six months. But had I, had I known how difficult it really was, it usually takes 18 to 24 months, and it's very hard to, for an individual to go out and raise money. So, yeah. And that was really a testimony to Allen and company who really helped me do that. And they essentially went to their best customers and said, back this guy, and had they not been... Had they not done that, I'm not sure I could have done what I did. But nevertheless, I raised $250 million to invest in companies that we could own and run. And then I raised another $80 million. And then in five years, we went out and bought 17 companies. And those 17 companies roughly at, at one point you know, operated in, I don't know, 20 or 30 countries, had offices in like 18 or 19 countries, employed like 1,700 people. Um, and then last fall, we raised another $600 million, actually just raised some more from um, some wealthy investors, and, and now in position to look to deploy that money. And at re this uh, spring, bought a company called Two Circles, was a data company. And so in Bruin two, 1 and 2, uh, we bought 18 companies, really put them in the really four buckets. One would be live events. We sold the live events business in beginning of January, media and marketing. And uh, what we do is we, myself, go out and help these companies generate more revenue through the relationships we've built over 25 or 30 years. And then also I think we're pretty good when things go wrong. And so when it's, if you're selling and you're a management team, we're very friendly versus other people who might be more financially oriented buyers. We've come from the industry and are probably more sympathetic or empathetic to, uh, to the owners. Also, one of the first businesses we acquired was the live event business from the NFL. So they sold the first time they ever sold a business. Um, you know, when you, you get old, I hope nobody happens to nobody, but it's gonna happen to everyone. Uh, a lot of these commissioners and, and, and people are running these leagues, you know, I knew when they were 20 and 30, now they're running the leagues. So we have a good reputation with those people. And we've got a great business we're able to buy from the NFL. Yeah, I get a lot there, but I would start from the beginning. You, you had said previously that raising money was one of the hardest things you've ever had to do in your career. Can you talk about the process of actually raising the money, particularly given how fast you were able to raise, you know, the $250 million? Right. I mean, I think I was, uh, I think being ignorant was a real strength because I didn't know how hard <laughs> it was. And then, and then I think another strength was I'm not very patient. 
And so, uh, but it's very hard because you have to go in there. When I first raised the money, I went in there, it was just me and a couple of pieces of paper. And I had to sell a vision of what I wanted to do and ask people to believe in me. And while I did find seven people who were interested, I probably had 40 people that said, no, thank you. And then what got hard about it was uh, we raised the money, we started investing it, and then I realized I needed more money. And then my lead investor, WPP, had financial troubles and the CEO got fired. And then I had to re replace them. And then I was out, almost out of money and I knew I had to raise more. And so it becomes, a, you know, it's, when someone comes in to people who back people like me, it's a lot easier to say no than yes. And so it was really quite difficult. And I probably spent, uh, of the first five years, we were probably fundraising three of the first five years. Yeah. You know, running businesses, wondering whether you have enough capital or money at your disposal to do what you're supposed to do is really kind of unnerving. And so, um, but it's hard to raise money. It's not easy. Um, but, you know, we did it. What was the feedback, you know, particularly sports funds and sports technology funds are relatively new in this space. You mentioned that, you know, you had a piece of paper. How, how were you able to convince whether well, it was WPP and you mentioned your relationship with Allen Company, but what do you think was the key or the keys to your success in terms of raising capital, particularly for a relatively nascent part of the private equity space? It was the track record. I mean, I think when I went to uh, NASCAR, their earnings were like 8 million. When I left, they were 150. And when I went to IMG, the businesses I ran are in less than 10 million. And when I left, they were 115. So be able to say, look, you know, two times in two different situations, I've done this, you know, back me. Now, the, the negative on that was, well, you know, there were a lot of other people helping you and you might not have been the driver and, you know, you're just one person. And those are big organizations. And that's why probably 40 or 50 people said no. <laughs> um, and then the, then the second time we raised money, it got a little easier because we had the track record of success at Bruin, but it still wasn't as easy as you thought. Um, because we're still a little bit risky when you think about uh, investing in one person who has ideas. That's a hard sale. Usually, well, when they call it a, a, a blind investment pool, usually even in that situation, there's five or six partners that have decided to go off on their own and be backed. And backing one person, you know, can be a little frightening for an investor. But thankfully, we've we've uh, found a few people that it did work for. And they've got great returns, so that's good too. And you mentioned in your experience at IMG, you learned how to acquire companies. Obviously, that's a key part of what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis now. Can you talk about what you look for in acquiring companies? And potentially, you, you know, you mentioned your experience with on location in the NFL. Um, we can talk about that more if you want to use that as kind of the frame for how you evaluate opportunities and then sell opportunities um, successfully. That that would be great as well. Yeah, what I learned from Ted, who was a financial guy, is it, it really starts with not finance. It's really the idea. You know, is this a good idea? And Ted used to say, is one and one equal three or four? And yeah. so it has to be a good idea. Then you have to have good management. And then you have to really believe in the economics. Now, we won't invest in something unless we think we can influence the outcome to the positive. Yeah. So a management team will present their numbers financially. We'll either believe them or not. And we'll have them sign up to it. But in the end, also, not only they are signing up to those numbers, but we believe we can add. So as an example, uh, you know, the NFL had on location. 
it had four employees, made seven million bucks. When we sold it, it had 550 employees, made 60 million. I just really felt that the Super Bowl was a great asset, and that you you could really do more with uh, if you dedicated more resources to that. And then when we sold it, you know, when we bought the company, the NFL was the only client. And when we sold it, there were 150 clients. So I felt like there were more people you could broaden that service out to. You know, Delta Trade um, is a company we bought in Northern Italy. It was a media services company, but it really builds web and apps and builds OTTs for broadcasters and um, leagues and federations. And I felt like that segment in 2016 was going to take off, you know, and it has. The other idea I thought is that we could take that company to America and sign up clients, which we did. So we signed up the NFL, NBA, PGA Tour, Major League Baseball, and we drove a lot of values. And, you know, we have a design company that's actually in Chicago called SoulSight, who's doing really well. And we thought design, as things go become more digitized, was going to be a growth area. And, um, boy, it's really doing great. So I think for us, what we think about the thesis is a little bit, you know, media is going to be, uh, technology is going to disrupt media. We want to invest around the change. And so live events we thought would do more. We thought, um, you know, technology and even design uh, would, would, would all benefit. So the, and now we just bought a data company, which, again, technology is going to disrupt how media is consumed data and analytics are going to be more valuable in the future. So we've kind of invested around the, the change in technology and its impact on the distribution of media. Yeah, obviously data analytics is something that we talk about in the course and obviously something my company focuses on. Can you talk about um, why you think data and how you use data and analytics and why you think data analytics and the technologies you're looking at have the potential for disruption in the industry? Well, I think when you go back in the simplest form, you know, years ago, you know, you'd see an ad on TV and you'd see an ad on a static ad somewhere. And now, because people aren't watching TV as much and they're, and you have the internet, we're able to reach a person individually. It's really the name and the relationship with the consumer that's really going to create the value going forward. And technology has allowed you to have that direct relationship with the consumer. So in order for you to have the relationship to the consumer, you have to know about the consumer, what they like, what they don't like, what they watch, what they won't watch, what what you can do to help change their behavior. And so I think the future is all going to be about data. So if I'm a Chicago Cubs fan, I'm the Cubs. I want to know everything about that fan. And really, I don't want to just sell them tickets. I want to sell them services and products and encourage them to use the products of my partners. And I really want to do that through data versus just the static billboard from years ago or the ad on TV. So I really think data is going to be a big part of the future. And, you know, we run the over the top network for the NFL in 181 countries. And I know at what price somebody will buy a, a subscription or not. I know what ads work and don't. And I think someday that they just won't be selling a subscription to the NFL. They'll be selling other services as well as a subscription to the game. So I just think when you think about data, Ticket selling is about data. Hospitality selling is data. How sponsorships of value of data. And then OTT, direct-to-consumer, is all data. So data in sports and in, I think in life is going to be a big part of it. Yeah, you, you mentioned also that um, 
you know, you obviously had, well, it was four, I think maybe now three verticals that you guys are focused on. Um, and you have a portfolio of different companies. How do you determine how, you know, whether it's with Engine Shop and Two Circles or Delta Tray or, you know, obviously the various other companies that you have, how do you think about those companies working together? And how do you think about those companies inter- intersecting and interacting within the context of the Bruin portfolio? If you do, maybe, maybe you don't see that as much, uh, but it'd be interesting to see from a portfolio perspective. It's a great question. I just got asked it like two hours ago by a, <laughs> in a business meeting. And, you know, as you kind of, I guess I'm le- after doing all that change at NASCAR and IMG, I'm a little worn out and I am a little bit against the grain already at Bruin. So one of the things I don't like to do, and by the way, I'm 54, but I'll always be for the young person because I was always the youngest person. But, you know, trying to convince 40 and 50 year old people to do things they don't want to do really is not fun. And I don't really want to do that anymore. So we don't force the companies to work together. We encourage them. We bring them together. But the collaboration really has to come from within. I don't think you can make people do things. Uh, the guys that have the most overlay right now are um, Two Circles and Delta Trade because one is technology and the other is data, and obviously they really intersect. And, you know, we've talked a lot about technology um, and obviously how you looked at it. You know, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but obviously we're still in the midst of the coronavirus and the impact of the coronavirus and COVID-19 on the sports industry. So how have you seen the coronavirus impact your portfolio companies? Uh, as the first question, the second question, does that change your perspective on what you're looking for from a, you know, companies from a technology perspective? Are there technologies that you think can or will emerge from the coronavirus that may be accelerated in, in their adoption from the coronavirus? So we could start first with the you know, first question, which is how, how have you seen that impact your portfolio companies in the industry more generally in terms of the coronavirus? Yeah. I think the coronavirus has had, you know, three impacts. The first impact is, you know, sports is like the airlines, hotel, you know, restaurants, hard hit. And the first place it's going to hit real hard is the game day experience and the game day revenues. Ticket selling, hospitality slash concessions, suites, sponsorship, all the local businesses around. Those are going to be hard hit uh, this year. And I think it's going to be have an effect for 12 to 36 months. I do think think people will come back, but I think it's going to be a little slower than people think. I mean, are you going to wait uh, 30 minutes for a $10 hot dog jammed in with people anytime soon? You know, I don't, I don't think so. So I think uh, the game day experience is going to be impacted. And, it's, and you see right now, so, you know, the Major League Baseball, which is heavy game day revenues, having a difficult time negotiating with the players, Major League Soccer, so the, that gate revenue is really important, and that disrupts, that disruption is going to be there for a while, and and that might create some problems on the team ownership side uh, as well. Um, so that's kind of to the negative. I think also have a big impact on college athletics as college football generates the vast majority of the revenue for that underwrites the, uh, all athletics, and that's heavily gate and so if the gate is not there that's going to certainly impact the athletic budgets at a lot of schools and the difference in college sports is that in the pros they're cutting the salaries of the of the players in college sports that money's going to the university there's no salaries to cut so it's going to be i think it's going to present some challenges that's on the negative on the positive side i do think as you mentioned it's going to accelerate you know the digital world I think you're going to see and things to look at are OTTs, 
Um, how does the regional sports networks hold up, you know, with 30 plus million people out of work? How long do they pay those cable bills? So I think it's going to continue to accelerate the disruption. And I think a lot of new technologies uh, will emerge here. And I think it's just accelerate, you know, something that was going to happen. I think it's just going to happen faster. And lastly, I just think in, uh, in sports, companies that are well run, that are not over leveraged, are probably going to do fair better than companies that maybe were not as tightly run or were heavily, uh, had heavy debt on them. So I think, you know, the last 10 years have been pretty good. Uh, quality people with quality capital was probably a little less appealing the last two or three years because anybody had it. Mm-hmm. And I think going forward, it'll be a little more valuable. And so one of the things you do with your companies when they first get into the brewing portfolio is you have them create three-year plans about what they're, you know, you know, from a financial and economic perspective, but also from a strategic and change perspective. Uh, one, have you had companies or are you having your companies revise their maybe three-year plans in the context of the coronavirus? Uh, and two, do you, or do you not see the need to do that as you kind of what you said that you're investing or looking for companies that have the ability to kind of weather and potentially thrive and succeed in the current environment? Actually, even for us, the coronavirus, and I think for everybody, is an opportunity to improve. And in our companies, we're hard hit. So, yes, we had to revise our plans and reforecast the business. And, and the number one thing is liquidity, meaning do you have enough cash for your operations? Yeah. And it's probably not something that we probably spent enough time on. So the first thing was making sure uh, each company had enough liquidity should things continue not to go well. And so, yes, we had to revise our plans. Amazingly, you know, this goes back. So if you think about Delta Tray is more in the streaming. Mm-hmm. So while they, they've been hit, they'll probably come out of it stronger and as the market leader. SoulSite, the company in Chicago, their business is actually up because their, pack- their, their customers are consumer packaged goods and in a digital world, it's all about design. Um, Overtier is a streaming business, doing really well. The data business, uh, Two Circles, is doing pretty well. And then Engine Shop, which was live events, uh, around live events, has been hit hard. So all of the companies in some way have been hit by it. And the number one thing I told all the CEOs is, listen, we just want to make sure we can get from point A to point B. It was kind of an, a very difficult 10 weeks. And uh, I feel right now we've kind of done all we can do. and We're kind of going back on offense. But you know, kind of with things getting worse every single day, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing if sports are coming back this year, not knowing even if they come back, will they really come back? You know, it presents challenges for sure. Yeah, as we get towards the end of the time, I want to ask you a couple more questions just to, to round out kind of what we're talking about. Um, you had mentioned also that in terms of your own personal plan that um, you potentially were, were looking to stay on maybe 10, 15, 20 more years at Bruin. And you see Bruin as potentially the legacy of the work that you've done in the industry. Um, you know, what, what about the opportunity at Bruin excites you to the point where you're looking to say, you know, you, you talked also about age and like at a certain age, I want to be at these certain places. So what about Bruin and what about the opportunity uh, at Bruin or the sports industry or the things that you're looking at makes you excited to stay potentially in the position that you're in for that long period of time? Yeah, I, I hope I have to stay healthy, obviously. Um, <laughs> it's sad that I even have to say that. But uh, but look, I, I love what I'm doing. I love sports. I love building things. I love challenges. Uh, I tell people I like getting knocked down because I like getting back up. And I think all of that's a lot of fun for me. 
So I'm excited about the sports. I think sports long-term is going to be strong. And um, I just I think it's a, a great business. And, you know, I have, I have four kids. They want to do something too. And they've watched, they've grown up watching the sports business athletes themselves. So, you know, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'd like to make a good run at it. And then the last question is, and a question we ask all our guests is, you know, we obviously have a lot of students and this is a student oriented podcast. So what advice do you have for students who are looking to get in the industry? And then on the flip side, you've also been in a position where you've been hiring, you've hired a lot of people and now you work with portfolio companies that are hiring a lot of people. So, you know, from either talking about what students can do to enter the industry or or progress in the industry or what you would look for when you're hiring people now uh, to these to sports organizations and or through your portfolio companies. I'd say a couple things. You know, if you're going to Northwestern Business School, you're smart, right? So I would say that you want to network like I did because that's really been important to me. I think if you're, you want to go into something that's growing, you know, if something that's growing, if you look at me, NASCAR was growing. Uh, Atlanta was a growing market. You know, IMG I thought was underdeveloped. College sports was growing. If you go into something that's growing, there's more opportunity for you at a young age. If it's shrinking by definition, it's going to be harder. So I think um, network, growth market, be with good people. The people at NASCAR that I work for were great people. The guys at Portland were great people. Be around good people. And then um, what was the second question? There was a second. What do you look for when you're hiring people? Like when so you were hiring when I'm hiring, Yeah, so I'm hiring someone. One, obviously, that their background is relevant. Now, as a political science major, I've never been qualified for anything. <laughs> so what also you're looking for somebody that has – you know, if, you're, if I was a Northwestern Business School graduate, I think, you know, somebody who's smart, um, somebody who is competitive, and somebody who's hungry. I oftentimes ask people about their background and their family because what I really want to know is, you know, how hungry are you? You know, because if you have someone who's smart and you have someone who's hungry, someone who has initiative, that person's going to be successful. And, uh, you know, we have a little Zoom call with our Bruin team. We have three or four interns on there now. Uh, I must say three of the four went to Brown. They're all, <laughs> all athletes. And, you know, they're, they're smart. And uh, we had a call yesterday. I went around the room to everybody on the, in, the, in the company. And then I, I asked the interns a few questions. I don't know if they were nervous. They gave great answers. And so, um, you know, being thoughtful, preparing, showing initiative, following up. Uh, and remember, you know, in the world that everyone's growing up in, we do have all these great technologies, but face-to-face is hard to beat and relationships are hard to beat. So uh, again, that'd be my, my, what I'm looking for is someone who's hungry and smart. Yeah, I think that's a great, great place to leave it. So George, uh, really appreciate the time, really appreciate the insights. Thanks for letting us walk through your career. Uh, obviously wishing you continued success and, and thank you for your time on the podcast. Today. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. You too.